This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello again, it's Andrew Harrison with another pick from our Connoisseur collection of Bunker Gold for the intra-Christmas period. We're representing quality episodes from the past that you might have missed. Today, never let it be said that we take the religion out of Christmas, in an edition from back in February, Arthur Snell takes a look at the fastest growing religion in the world today, Pentecostal Christianity, and its dodgy connections with authoritarian strongmen. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. How has a Christian movement founded at the turn of the 20th century become the fastest growing religion on earth? I'm talking about Pentecostalism, which has 600 million followers and gains 35,000 new followers every single day. L. Hardy has just written a book called Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World. And she joins me today from Australia to talk about her book. Elle, welcome to The Bunker. Thanks for having me. So Elle, I gave the sort of the the most striking um, statistic, or certainly the one that really hit me just when I was reading your book about the extraordinary growth of Pentecostalism, 35,000 new followers every day. Let's start off right there. This is an incredibly fast growing uh, religious movement. It is probably the the fastest growing one in the world. Uh, Where is this growth happening and what kinds of people are becoming Pentecostalists? Sure. So um, it, it's happening everywhere. Is the is the simple answer, but but primarily in uh, in Africa, in Latin America, and in parts of Asia. What I think is really interesting is that it's arguable that this is mainstream Christianity now, especially given the fact that that a lot of religious people know, um, which is you don't tend to convert atheists; you tend to convert people who already believe. And Pentecostals have done really, really well in, in picking up um, Catholics, whether they were sort of nominal Catholics or, or practicing, and giving them this the Pentecostal faith, which gives them a bit more and, and really speaks to material conditions as well as spiritual conditions. Yeah, and that that's a really interesting point. You make it in the book. Take a country like Brazil, you know, largest country in, in Latin America, huge population. Most people probably think of Brazil as a strongly Catholic country and, and you imagine that the Catholic Church is very powerful in Brazil, which, which it certainly is. But that power is under real threat, isn't it, from, from the Pentecostalists? Very much so. Uh, we're sort of in a period now where there may be more Pentecostals than, than Catholics or, or at least uh, that there will be in the next 10 years in, in Brazil. It's really especially speaking to, to people in the global south. It's, it's austere. It's 
energetic. It's, you know, the miraculous. It's giving people hope. Health and wealth of what we tend to say is, is what really gets people into the tent. So it, it's speaking to their everyday needs in, in ways that the Catholic Church and other forms of religion traditionally haven't. We should probably go back to the beginning a bit. And, and you do that brilliantly in your book, talking about what is Pentecostalism and, and how did it begin? So perhaps you could sort of give a little slice of that to the listener. The best way of describing it is evangelical plus. So an evangelical uh, will be will accept Jesus as their Lord and Saviour and be born again. Pentecostals do that, but then they're also born again in the spirit, which means that they are they're filled with the Holy Spirit and then manifest nine gifts in, in the Bible that, that were described. That's best known through speaking in tongues, although we're seeing fewer and fewer converts these days speak in tongues. Uh, but, and it's often embracing uh, the miraculous uh, in those gifts of the Spirit. And, and that is something that we see over and over again in, in all these different cultures and parts around the world that, that really means a lot to people. So you mentioned that the speaking in tongues, uh, if I remember my Bible rightly, uh, in, in the Acts of the Apostles, um, Jesus's original followers sort of got the power to speak foreign languages so that they could take Christian message to, to new communities. Uh, but a version of this has become central, or certainly in the, in the earlier days of Pentecostalism, was central to that definition of who is a Pentecostalist. Is that right? Very much so. And, and even today, there is uh, that, that spirit is very much alive. So, so when it came into being in, in a Los Angeles church in, in 1906, interestingly, by, by the son of a, a freed slave from, from Louisiana, People had that real missionary zeal. They, they genuinely thought they were speaking in Chinese and Swedish and all these other languages and, and sort of dreamed of going to these exotic, far-off places to, to convert the masses. And uh, a lot of people did. Well, they, they at least set sail for it. Um, unfortunately, a lot of them were shockingly ill-prepared. Uh, they, they were just, you know, going off um, the miracle that they believed had taken place and, you know, yeah didn't speak in didn't speak the language and they got to China and a lot of them died in pretty awful ways from dysentery and other such things. But but that spirit of that that really positive take on faith that that you really have to go out and get get the word out and and convert people all over the world has always been very central. And I think one of the reasons why it really has spread across so many cultures, we think of things so often from this secular, liberal Western point of view, but but most parts of the world don't really think like that. You know, they have a very spiritual conception of the world. And it's one of Pentecostalism's successes is that ability to speak to people in their local culture in ways that they understand. It's, it's completely decentralised. So anyone with a following um, can, you know, can, can be a prophet or an apostle and, and can convert people. And that's why we often see Pentecostalism looking very different in very different parts of the world because it, it tends to look like the local culture. As I mentioned, in, in your book, you, you give a, an account of the earliest uh, days of Pentecostalism. And it, the book is, is fascinating. It's also, you know, it's quite amusing in part. So there's some very colourful characters, and uh, particularly Amy Semple, who, who really jumped off the page. Perhaps you could say a bit about her. Sure. So, so I profile what I believe are sort of the three main figures in the, the founding of Pentecostalism. And this came through the, the strains of 19th century America, 
you know, prophets and priests wandering the country, that religious marketplace that, that was so uniquely American at the time. Um, so, so first there was Charles Fox Parham, then William J. Seymour, who's really considered the, the founder of Pentecostalism. That's the, the son of, of freed slaves. And then there's Amy Semple McPherson. And she was, she was essentially a proto-televangelist. And she really took it to the, to the masses. Um, her first husband was was one of these missionaries that that actually died of dysentery when when they made it to Hong Kong on on their way to China. Mm. Uh, but but she came back, and she just had a real a real gift for for people and crowds. Um, you know, like, like a politician, maybe like a a Bill Clinton or, or someone like that. Um, you know, they said that she could sense a waning audience and she could sort of bring them back round. But she also she also really mainstreamed it. Um, you know, a lot of these early accounts of Pentecostalism were, were carried in local papers because they were so um, sensationalist. You know, it was people falling to the floor, shaking, being filled with the spirit. It was whooping. It was stomping. It was it was so improvised and, and miraculous and full of joy that that turned some people off. And it was also from its earliest days a um, relig- a faith that happily let races mix and, and genders mix, which is also something that, that was fairly uh, taboo at the time. So Amy Semple McPherson really started making it just a bit more mainstream and palatable. So she'd sort of put the, the people who were trembling and shaking on the ground in tents outside and, and just made it a bit nicer. And she got really into radio. She, she may have been the first uh, woman to have a radio show in the world or a radio station. Um, and, and she really understood about getting that message out there and, and being able to speak to so many people in so many different places at once with this very inspired, muscular, very, very new take on Christianity. And as you observe in the book, she's somebody who it's completely possible to imagine her in the 2020s being an incredible social media star. But something that happens to her and, and appears to happen to to quite a lot of Pentecostalist leaders is that a sort of celebrity style scandal, and I, I don't want to sound prurient because, you know, that's not the point here, but it, it, seemed, it does seem to be a, a feature of the book that quite a lot of people are brought low by sort of classic um, celebrity sex scandal or other kind of personal uh, personal behavioural issue, you might say. Yeah, it really seems to happen over and over again. I mean, we've seen it recently with various scandals in the Hillsong Church, which is one of the best-known Pentecostal uh, brands, as, as they might say, in, in the world. And, and, yeah, I think it's really because that that leader isn't, you know, they don't go through any theology school. <laughs> they they yeah. often very deliberately are, you know, anti-intellectual and in, in that regard. Um, there's There's no overarching authority, so it really just is, someone who can pull a crowd um that that can be positive you know in brazil one of the one of the real defining features is it's you know not some some guy who's been educated in portugal and has dumped you know dropped into your favela to to bring the word from the pope it's it's a local guy who grew up with you and who looks like you he speaks the same lingo as you so so that's you know that that's a very powerful thing and certainly central to this to this real rise and conversion that we're seeing but on the other hand, it almost goes without saying that, that without that oversight, there, there often are problems. You know, these are these are charismatic people in name and in practice. And, uh, you know, there, there can be abusive powers. Um, you know, they, they can be troubled people themselves. And one of the things that um, sort of more modern Pentecostal academics have recognised is something that came from Weber, which is that um, churches kind of lose their, their spark when they get routinized. 
part of the the growth and and part of the appeal of these churches is how you know kind of spontaneous and and out there that they are you know and it's really just just running on the mood and what people are feeling like and and can be very flexible um but yeah obviously in the in the longer term that that can present a, a very new set of problems as, as i mentioned where we're seeing with, with hillsong now with pastor nick lentz who was very famous in in new york was you know justin bieber's pastor being brought low by a string of infidelities and and other issues um you know that, that came along with his fame yeah i mean in the interest of balance i suppose it's very important to, to re- remind listeners although they don't probably don't need reminding that uh, you know, the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church and a lot of these established churches are not exactly uh, immune to sex scandals. So I, I certainly, I, I, th- I think I should sort of put that on the record. Um, Absolutely. Sorry. Yeah. And I should say, I mean, that is um, in, in parts of Latin America and the Philippines, um, Catholic Church sex scandals are, are another, you know, real, real driving, real driving yeah. factor. Um, some of these leaders would call themselves, you mentioned earlier, would call themselves religious entrepreneurs. Yes. And, and that, that spontaneity and it's that, you know, real creative destruction that, that they're doing with, with traditional faith that, that is so popular. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. That entrepreneurialism, I'm glad you mentioned it because that's where I wanted to go next, really, because another feature of this is the prosperity aspect. Now, that's partly the attraction to the the adherent that, that, you know, unlike some other interpretations of Christianity, basically... Everyone's very comfortable about getting rich and, and, and being successful. But of course, very often the, the leaders of these churches are getting incredibly rich. And you name the, the very famous Nigerian uh, leader of sort of mega churches, Adeboye, who, who is almost certainly a, a billionaire in, in dollar terms. Um, so is, is, there, is there any degree to which uh, people become a bit cynical that they might be basically joining a sort of pyramid scheme business and, and, and they're gifting money to, to somebody who's, who's sort of coining it. Certainly. So, so not all preachers are, you know, riding around in private jets, although I've certainly met some of them. But prosperity gospel certainly is, is a feature of Pentecostalism. It, it came about in the, in the 60s and 70s in America and it's really spread around the world. Um, places like Nigeria and, and Brazil particularly, it, it's very popular you know, they, they say that it's seeding, you know, you give a bit of money to your church and, and the leader and then you'll get much more back in return. You know, a lot of people see, see that as a grift. Mm. But there's some really compelling research that, that it tends to work. Nothing's free in this world, right? And people, people feel as though they're buying into something. They're buying into an accountability structure. Again, it's often this thing in places like Nigeria and Brazil that it's your traditional Catholic priests, you know, might have a lot going on. You're your smaller little church or, or your particular pastor, you know, they're checking up on you. They, you know, will encourage you to leave your awful job at the factory and start the little street vending business that, that you've been talking about, that, that you've been dreaming about. And then they'll encourage the congregation to go and start shopping there. 
And people, when they, they buy into the structure of accountability, it's often as well getting their life together. And, you know, it's really powerful in, in getting people off the drink and gambling and things like that. So, so people often have this really great story and then it tends to bring other people in as well. And, and it's often around that prosperity. You know, I've seen people in Brazil before work praying with their wallet on top of a Bible and, and holding it aloft to the sky. Thinking about this prosperity gospel, uh, you mentioned uh, in, in particular Nigeria, and, and that was of, of particular interest to me because I actually lived there for a little while. And, and whilst I've never attended a service at a mega church, uh, I've, I've passed some of these famous ones on the highway between Lagos and Ibadan, which, which you describe in your book. Um, I think it's there that the incredible scale of Pentecostalism is become sort of physical reality. Now, you you went there and, and, and you, you sort of report it in, in your book. I just wonder if you could describe, because it's quite hard for somebody who's not aware of this world to get their heads around just how big this stuff is. Yeah, it, it's really quite an incredible sight. There's a very long highway that, that might take you hours of, of driving time, you know, just, just snaking along. You're getting out, you're coughing like you've smoked a packet of cigarettes the night before from, from all of the fumes. And there might be hundreds and thousands of people around you descending on these, what's been described as, as airport hangars. They're these huge, often sort of iron ceiling roofs that, with no walls and, and just, you know, thousands and thousands of pews. Uh, no one can actually see the preacher that far back. So they, they have uh, TV screens showing the service. It's really quite quite remarkable, and um, you know some of these these almost amphitheaters c- could hold uh, hundreds of thousands of people at a time. That people don't always go to them. Uh, that particular gigantic church on the side of the road. It might be a couple of times a year when they have big conventions. Uh, they have branches of these churches all around all around Nigeria, hundreds of, of, of different mega churches. It's a profound thing. These are these are true believers, and and. The, the church that really kicked it all off, the, the Redeemed Church, started because the leader saw that that people were spending all this time on the highway, commuting every day to Lagos. It's a city of 20 million people. It's huge. It's considered, you know, wildly corrupt from oil money. And and people that, that are going in there to work and stuff really have spiritual needs that, that weren't being addressed. So these churches started, you know, as somewhere that you could go to um, before and or after work. That they've now really built out, you know, people are in this traffic for three hours each way, um, especially a lot of young people, so, so you can't meet a partner. So they run speed dating events. Um, they, they, you know, sing songs. It's a real celebration of, of culture, which is often in, in Lagos, Yoruba. Um, but but it's, a, it's a real coming together and often a real celebration of life, um, even though at the same time there can be quite, you know, um, fire and brimstone type sermons going on. Yeah. And one of the things that occurred to me as I was reading it, that this, these might be the largest sort of assemblies of people all gathered to do the same thing anywhere on planet Earth. I can't think of anything bigger. It's bigger than any football match bigger than any political meeting. It, it's a sort of almost unbelievable number of people all in one venue to do the same thing, isn't it? Very much so, yeah. I mean, the only thing is, you know, yeah, perhaps if there's a, a revolution or something <laughs> and, and you've got everyone out on the streets, but, at, um, you know, I've, I've been to the main Redeemed Church campground, often called Redemption City. The large uh, tent, I suppose you'd almost call it, uh, could fit six Vaticans inside of it. The small one uh, could fit three. I, 
I only got a chance to go around the small one and it, it's uh, one kilometre by one kilometre. And, and just even driving, you know, that, that that's huge. It's really difficult to to explain the scale of this religious movement and and therefore I think it's it's often underestimated and overlooked just how how powerful it is you know as I said just how many people they're getting in the tent 35,000 converts a day is is the capacity of lords and change yeah it's it's huge and and it's happening and and I think it's one of the sort of great uh overlooked stories of our time definitely as you mentioned you, you know Nigeria for example, is a country where people live very tough lives. And, and as I mentioned, you know, I've spent time there. Uh, Lagos is is an extraordinarily uh, tough city to live in. You uh, you will commute for hours a day. There's a lot of crime. Public services are almost invisible. Uh, so in some senses, it's easy to understand how a church like this, which gives you a whole life, as you, as you mentioned, um, but there is a, there's another side to Pentecostalism, which we haven't talked about, which is really some of the fundamental kind of social beliefs. A lot of Pentecostalism takes the Bible literally, and that means then that you don't have a very open-minded attitude to same-sex relationships. You may have strong views on certain kind of socially conservative policies that politicians might adopt. And you may not be uh, very hot on on other non-Christian faiths. So what what is the political impact? Particularly, it'd be interesting to look at America, because, of course, uh, that's where, although it's ostensibly a, a secular country, where we see this overlap between right wing politics and and Christianity is, is quite strong. Absolutely. So, so in America, I, I would say that Pentecostalism is the theological wing of the the new populist right that's really emerged there. Um, Pentecostals were the the first and and really committed supporters of Trump. They saw something in him early on, and and again, you know, we've seen it over and over again. Uh, Duterte in the Philippines had a big Pentecostal leader behind him. Uh, Yaya Bolsonaro in Brazil had had many of the big Pentecostals behind him. Even Viktor Orban in Hungary had, had a Pentecostal mm. leader behind him early on. Um, so, so it really speaks to the political moment that we're in. And Pentecostal faith is such a direct and personal experience with God. And so it's really about how you feel and how it makes you feel. And Pentecostalism is very good at making people feel good. It's also very empowering. So, you know, often that that might be a a single mom in Brazil trying to get her life together, but it can also be a a very angry uh, right-wing guy who's been watching a lot of Facebook and decides to storm the the Capitol on January 6th. And and that's certainly, that there were certainly people there that day who were inspired by the movement. It really, Pentecostalism has that real disdain for experts what's sort of brought from on high rather than than what you feel inside of you. And that's where it really joins forces with populist politics of the moment. So it tends to really reject things such as feminism, very into girl power but very anti-feminist. LGBT issues are, are often really, really big, especially in the global south. Um, and, and it really speaks to people, you know, who do feel quite alienated by things like technology, environmentalism sometimes as well. You know, they, they really feel that the West has lost its way. And it's really a sense of feeling besieged by the liberal, secular world around them, you know, that, that maybe they can't, don't feel as though they can openly express, um, you know, anti-LGBT 
feelings in their workplace anymore and, and things like that and just really feeling that their faith is under attack. And, and that's why it's all really bubbled up um, with the support of someone like Trump, but, but also just with providing, you know, what is essentially the muscle behind sort of a, a move towards Christian dominionism in the US. You know, they, a lot of the, you know, the pretty hard right Republicans know that the, the demographic battle is lost. They know that the democratic battle could soon be lost. And this is the, the sort of higher authority that, that you can get maybe enough people to believe in to take power in a different way. Now, we're talking about a religious movement that brings people in, often people who are perhaps sort of down on their luck or who, who think that, you know, life has dealt them a tough card. Um, it quite often uh, requires that those people give some of their money in, into this movement and, and those people themselves may not be wealthy. Um, it's a movement that's that's quite tight socially and it might help you find a new partner and a, and a new um, community. Uh, is this a cult? Are, are Pentecostalist churches um, just mega cults? Absolutely not. I do get this question a lot and I just don't see that the value in dismissing it, it's, it's at least a quarter, probably closer to a third of global Christians are now Pentecostals. You know, there's no, there's no one central leader as, as, as there is in a cult. Uh, they're often, you know, very normal people living normal lives. And I just don't think it's helpful. And, and it's often sort of a, a very dismissive attitude that, that some people might take in, in saying that it's a cult when, when it really is a powerful uh, religious, political, social and economic movement. Yeah. So I guess finally, I wanted to sort of explore a bit where you think that the future lies. As far as I can see from your book, there's absolutely no uh, sign of this slowing down. There's one actually one bit in your book where you you talk about a sort of Pentecostalist Islam which, which exists in uh, Nigeria. Although I think that's fairly unusual in, in global terms. So I suppose a, a couple of questions about how do you think this this movement might affect the wider uh, sort of religious balance in the world? And I suppose particularly if we talk about the the two other faiths with with many millions of followers, Islam and Hinduism. Is Pentecostalism making inroads amongst followers of those faiths? And then perhaps also, uh, where do you think this might drive politics? Because you make some interesting points about, for example, what your attitude might be to climate change if you believe that the second coming of Christ is just around the corner. Um, so, so perhaps let's start with the, the, the question about the other faiths. Sure. So, so it's hard to measure. I don't think that they, uh, as you mentioned, uh, with the Nigerian uh, Pentecostal Islam or born again Islam, um, and they really don't like me calling it that, by the way. Mm. Um, I think that's quite a rarity, and that's really born out of particular conditions in in Lagos, where you know it's been very mixed Christian and, and Muslim for a long time. Yeah. Uh, but but there's certainly Pentecostals making inroads in the Gulf states with migrant workers, particularly. So Filipino and subcontinental uh, migrant workers, you know, fitting the the real Pentecostal pattern of people going into huge cities, feeling alienated, looking for some connection to community and culture, and and finding it in a church. Um, so so I don't think it's it's going to um, you know, massively con- convert people from Indonesia and uh, Egypt and India, but. But it's certainly making inroads and and speaking to people there in very new ways. Um, as for how far it can go, I mean, there's obviously 
going to be a point when it slows down unless it takes over, you know, well, my book is how it's taking over the world. So (laughs) maybe, but um, I mean, I think there'll be a point where it slows down. What I think will be really interesting is that we have seen this real explosion in conversion since, since the, since the early eighties and particularly over the last 20 years. And what is one of the really powerful things about Pentecostalism is that born again moment for people. It's a real demarcation in their life where they see things before and things after and that that testimony and and that feeling that it, that it changed your life is is such a powerful thing. I I, I can't overstate that. Um, so I think you know perhaps when there's second and third generations of people born into this faith that don't have that demarcation, maybe they'll slow down a bit. Maybe there'll be even you know bigger and better competitors that that slide into this space. I'm not sure. It's it's going to be very interesting, but but certainly for the moment it's still moving apace and and still converting large swathes of, of traditional Christian denominations. And even where it's not converting them, it's often changing the way that some of these traditional faiths are, are going about their practice. Yeah. And so then th- that final question I had, which was really about... Um, what do you think that the wider impacts in the future? I mean, I, I touched on the climate change example, uh, and we've already t- talked a bit about some of the sort of socially conservative aspects of this faith. Uh, is Pentecostalism going to drive a more conservative politics, particularly in the countries where it, it is particularly prevalent? So Brazil, the United States, uh, one or two other countries around the world. It's certainly going to, and it is right now, really fortifying right-wing politics. Um, you know, it, like I said, it's that theological wing and it's also giving people, you know, in the States and elsewhere, and if you say, okay, well, if you don't want democracy, you know, what do you want? And they'll say, you know, a, a biblical Christian state. Um, so, so it's giving b- both believers and, and maybe non-believers on that side of politics uh, an idea, I suppose, of, of you know, something, something else that might work, an alternative. It's empowering for better and it's empowering for, for worse at times. And, and it's giving people that sense that they can live victorious lives. Pentecostals are really great at, at online stuff and social media. So particularly in the pandemic, you know, I've sort of watched groups of people online going to some pretty dark places by finding some, you know, really fiery um, preachers and sermons on things like Facebook and sort of getting down these rabbit holes themselves and, and really getting fired up about, about their anger and using that Pentecostalism and using some of the, the biblical verses that to really say that, yeah, it's not just about saving me. I've, you know, we've got to transform society. We've, we've got to do all this. And, and it's that, that real inspiration um, to people, as I said, for better and worse. And, and unfortunately, I would say that a lot of people, particularly in sort of right-wing and conservative politics, it, it's often inspiring uh, for, for the worst in that it's, yeah, it's fairly hostile to, to liberal secular democracy, which is, you know, has its problems, but I'm not sure I'm a fan of the alternatives. Well, uh, I, I couldn't agree more on, on your last point, and I think that's a, a great point to sort of uh, end this discussion. Uh, as I mentioned, El Hardy's book, Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World, the fascinating read. So, El, thank you so much for joining me in the bunker. Thank you for having me. Listeners, 
Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. If you like this episode, why not share it with three friends using the Bunker Up hashtag? You can also back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. The Bunker was presented by Arthur Snell, with audio production from me, Robin Lieber. The Bunker is produced by Jelena Sofronovich and Jacob Archbold. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. Lead producer is Jacob Jarlett. Theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. And The Bunker is a Podmasters production.